Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. Today on the Thin Green Line podcast, we have Mark Oliva with us, the Director of Public Affairs at the National Shooting Sports Foundation. And Mark is no stranger to media stuff. Uh, you've been doing that your whole life. I mean, Mark, from the Marine Corps up, from everything I've looked at for your background. So you eat and breathe this stuff. Yeah, uh, it's, it could be a mixed blessing, I guess, however you want to look <laughs> at it. It's, uh, it's something that I've always been doing, but it's uh, it's become a bit of a of a passion of mine, I guess, over the years is to try to be able to explain what could be some really complicated issues in, in plain, simple English so that people understand what's going on. Uh, you know, obviously I got to do this for, for many years in the Marine Corps and, and got to be able to explain, you know, some very complex issues about war, about the department of defense, about, uh, you know, some of the things that we were doing as defense policy. And, and, and after I retired, I was able to go from one big gun club to another. Now working at the national shooting foundation and, being able to talk about the issues that affect the industry, which of course affect our ability to exercise our second amendment rights and enjoy the shooting sports, get out hunting, et cetera. And guys, I got to say, it is just a treat for me to be able to talk with you guys. I grew up in New Hampshire. Uh, so oh, nice. I cut my teeth as a hunter in, in, the, in the woods around Londonderry, New Hampshire, uh, you know, hunting out in, in the Musquash area. Uh, and so, you know, chasing deer and not being very successful at that, but <laughs> uh, I was able to uh, to enjoy it, and, uh, and while we're at it, we can just, we can talk about how uh, uh, building up nothing but points with New Hampshire's moose lottery. Someday we'll all start drawing some uh, some tags again. Someday, uh, well, right when now, you get it, call me. I, I, I can help <laughs> I, you out in I, that I, category. <laughs> I sure I sure will because it's uh, obviously a whole lot 
time to get back up to New Hampshire to visit family. But uh, but when I do, I'm always out looking alongside the road and, and trying to get out and look at the uh, look at the lakes to see uh, where the moose are moving and where the bear are moving. And 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 I miss I miss being up there in that part of the country in the fall. It's it's that's what heaven looks like to me. So mm, I am so with you, man. And uh, it's just gorgeous. The colors, the yeah. I wish the moose population was cooperating. It certainly has probably been a little more solid the last few years, but. You know, I say ticks are going to control the world someday. Uh, yeah. They're, they're growing. Yeah. It's just all the little bugs, everything that crawls and bites is going to control the world, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and with Mark, that, we, we got to go ahead, John. Yeah, no, Mark, we, we got to say we're really happy to have you on the show, especially like you said, with your military background, serving the country, especially educating on from everything from firearms training, like you mentioned, but especially with the Second Amendment rights and all the issues we're experiencing right now, given the politics of the country, uh, given what just happened with COVID and this sudden surge in gun sales and, you know, hunter education certifications going up to traditionally non-conservationists out there, which Wayne and I as game wardens and you too as a conservationist, we certainly like to see that. Um, and the whole field to fork, you know, mentality that more people may need to do it because of things like a pandemic or self-sustenance, uh, for lack of a better word. So really glad to have you on the show and, and dive into some of the things you're seeing from your new organization and how that affects all of us is, uh, you know, Second Amendment aficionados, if you will. Yeah, I, I, it really has been a dynamic year. And I think this is a year that's uh, that's kind of reset a lot of people's thinking about uh, Second Amendment rights uh, and, and reset their thinking about, uh, you know, healthy and sustainable living, uh, like you're talking about, being able to to use the natural resources that are around us and be able to, you know, feed your family, knowing where that food's going to come from and, and having the pride of knowledge of knowing where it is that food's coming from and the work that it took to get that food from the, from the field to your freezer and eventually to your family's dinner plate. I think uh, people are... are are really t- uh, reawakening to some of that passion that some of us have had so many times. And it's exciting time to be able to reintroduce people back to the sport if they've been out of it for some time or, or bring new people in. So it's, it really is a fun time to be, to be a hunter and, and bring people in. Yeah. But it's also a challenging time. Isn't it Mark? Every time I turn around, there's a second amendment issue, uh, whether it's on Facebook, on Instagram, in the papers, uh, on the news thing. Uh, it's like we're, we're, we're getting attacked here and we're bringing so much into a shooting industry, whether you like shooting just for pleasure or you use it for hunting. It's just, uh, yeah, it's crazy. It, it has been challenging and it's probably going to be challenging for the next few years, given the administration that we have and, and given the, uh, the makeup of the, con- of the Congress. It, it's important to note that, you know, while while the Congress is uh, controlled by Democrats who are traditionally more uh, pro-gun control, uh, it is a really narrow margin. Uh, and the House of Representatives is the narrowest margin it's ever been. Uh, and, and, of course, they're looking very closely at people who are retiring and, and people who are not going to run again, uh, people who are going to be leaving seats empty, uh, special elections. They're all monitoring that stuff very closely because that really does have a big impact. And, and, of course, the same thing in the Senate, although the Senate tends to move things a little bit slower because it's a six-year election cycle. But, of course, there in New Hampshire, everyone's closely watching what's going to happen with the two senators from New Hampshire and, and, and should – uh, possibly your governor decide that he want to throw his name into the into the ring and challenge one of those senators, which I know there's been a lot of buzz about. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of uh, New Hampshire Second Amendment supporters have really been proud of the work that Governor Sununu has done right. to protect Second Amendment rights in the Grand State. No doubt, yeah. no doubt. So, but with, with those challenges, it, it actually 
you know, has a lot of successful things that are happening too. I know that we get some stuff going up to the Supreme Court too, that it may be a good time for that if it's not a good time for Congress and the Senate. Yeah, so so the New York State and Rifle Pistol uh, v. Corlett case is headed up there to the Supreme Court. And this is the first case that's headed to the Supreme Court in, in well over 10 years. So the last case was was a uh, uh, McDonald case that went out, McDonald v. Chicago. Uh, and so we're, we're really excited to see that happen. And it's been a little bit frustrating, I think, for a lot of people who you know kind of watch what the court is doing and watch these cases that are coming up. There were, last year, 10 cases pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. That, that the Supreme Court could have chosen to take any one of them. And the interesting part is it only takes four justices to agree to hear uh, a second and to hear any case, much less a Second Amendment case. Um, and you've had on separate instances, uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh all put into writing or in public statements uh, their frustrations with the court's unwillingness to take up Second Amendment issues. Uh, Justice Thomas called it uh, a, a relegation of the Second Amendment to a second class right. So it's interesting when you had four sitting justices complaining that they weren't getting these cases, yet four of those justices wouldn't vote to take those cases uh, for uh, a hearing before the court. And and a lot of people can be confused as to why it may have happened. Well, I think a lot of the speculation is, of course, it takes five of those justices to come across on on a case for that case to be carried. And it seems to be that those four, any of those four justices may have not trusted one more justice to be with them. Well, they pretty much could count on, you know, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan and Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg to have not been there on the court case with them. They're traditionally a liberal uh, voting block on when it comes right. to these issues. So that puts Justice Chief Justice Roberts as the uh, swing vote on that. And Chief Justice Roberts did vote in favor of uh, both Heller and McDonald. But it seems that maybe that one, at least one of those justices didn't trust him to be there with it. So they didn't take any of those cases. So the fact that now you have Justice Barrett sitting on that court, and you have five justices who describe themselves as originalists, as constitutionalists, as textualists, that the law means says when it was written. Um, they're now taking this case. And it really could upend the way we kind of see things about the Second Amendment. So if we take a step back and take a look at the way that Heller, Heller decided or Heller affirmed, rather, that the Second Amendment is your individual right. It's not a right of the government to give or take at its, at, at its whim. That belongs to you. It's pre-existing. It's given to you by your creator. Heller, Heller affirmed that. The McDonald decision held that the states are required to uh, enforce protections for the Second Amendment, that they have to treat the Second Amendment the same way that they treat the First Amendment or the, or the Fourth Amendment or any other amendments under the, under the Bill of Rights. That this is not just uh, the purview of the, of the federal government, but the states are responsible because this right is so important that they have to they have to ensure that they're protecting it as well. So Heller tells us that it's our individual right. McDonald tells us that it is the state's responsibility to protect that. And now this case, the New York State and Rifle Pistol Association v. Correlate, is asking that question: Is the state stepping in and denying Second Amendment rights to law-abiding citizens? by making it a May issue uh, decision as to whether con- to issue a concealed carry permit. Now, I used to have a concealed carry permit when I was still a resident. I got mine from my chief of police from my hometown where I lived there. Mm-hmm. The whole time I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, when I retired, of course, now I have my concealed carry permit in the state in which I live, and I've got one in a neighboring state as well. And of course, now New Hampshire's constitutional carry. And you can still get a permit in the state if you want. But now what this comes down to the question is really is going to kind of inform is, if it goes to that, New York cannot, you know, cannot go where states 
get to say yes or no based on the feelings of, of, of either the state police commissioner or the governor or the legislature on how they want to do it. And they have to become shall issue states like New Hampshire was in, in the state I live in. It's a shall issue state. Uh, that, that means the state has to find a reason to not give it to you in order for, for them to, to die for you. This is something that's a prohibiting factor. So if they come back and they say the states don't have that and they have to issue that to you, well, now that kind of makes the case for constitutional concealed carry reciprocity, now doesn't it? it so really does. yeah. Congress, yeah. So, so Congressman Hudson out of North Carolina and Senator Cornyn out of Texas have both introduced the Constitution, Constitutional Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act. And that would treat your concealed carry permit the same way as, as you treat your driver's license. Now, again, I used to have my driver's license in New Hampshire. I had to go through New Hampshire driver ed to get it. But my license was still good in New Hampshire when, when I drove there. It was good in Massachusetts. It was good in Maine. Now that I live in Virginia, my Virginia license is just as good in New Hampshire when I drive back up to visit family. Well, this would treat your concealed carry permit the same way. New Hampshire could still set their own laws. Virginia could still set their own laws for as to how you're going to obtain that. And if there's any training requirement to go with that and any specific places that you can't take it within those states. But it would also make it so that when I cross those state lines, because if I travel to visit my home, my family back home in New Hampshire, as soon as I leave Virginia, my concealed carry permit is not recognized by anybody across into New Hampshire's into New Hampshire state lines. Once I'm in New Hampshire, then I have reciprocity with that agreement as well. Of course, New Hampshire being a concealed carry, constitutional concealed carry state is not an issue. However, it puts all those states in between when I'm driving. It puts me at risk of, of uh, if I cross that line, if I, if I cross into Maryland or I go into any of those other states and I'm not aware of what I'm doing at the time, I could be violating state law to put myself at risk for arrest. So we're trying to see if we can eliminate that. Let's, but if the case, if this case, the, the New York State and Rifle Pistols should be correlated goes that way. It really makes the case for there's really no need for us to have to go out and get 50 permits anymore. So actually become right. used right. to it right. at that point. So it should be that the states are treating their licenses, their permits, uh, just like they do a driver's license. Well, and we're certainly hoping for something just like that because it just streamlines the process nationally. Um, it doesn't ebb and flow necessarily with whatever administration happens to be in that state at that time. So kudos to you guys for doing that. And is that something um, NSSF is, is really pushing? Is that kind of a priority uh, function right now of, with your experience you're bringing to the organization? And what are next steps on that? What do you guys, what do you guys foresee happening there? Yeah, so the, the, the court case itself is, is we're not party to the court case. We're watching it very closely. Uh, but we, but we, are, um, we are supportive and we are working with members of Congress and the Senate to get this Constitutional Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act pushed forward. Now, we, we've been working at this for several years. And sometimes things in Congress take four, five, six times at a go to get these right. across the line. And we're going to continue to push at that. But really, I think that the, the opportunity is here. Should this, this court case go the way that we think it should, if Heller and McDonald are informing, if we're reading this correctly, it's always very, uh, it's very iffy to try and predict what the Supreme Court's going to do, right. disappoint many times. Yeah, uh, yeah. But if it is informing the way we think it is informing, then, then this should kind of inform where we should be going with Constitution concealed carry reciprocity. And the way that Congress should be treating at that point. Otherwise, they're going to be putting the burden on you to collect 50 concealed carry permits in every state and carry those with you every time you travel. So uh, so we're, we're very hopeful that we're moving in the right direction on this. That's awesome. Yeah. And you would think it would go that way just because the federal government would, you know, 
I've been teaching uh, criminal law this uh, semester, and you know I've been getting back onto my constitutional law really hard. And uh, you know that you know just set the precedent so it's that much easier. I used to carry my federal ID with me when I traveled, just in case, you know, because I had my state ID. But I always we were sworn federally twice over for marine fisheries as well as uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So I'd carry one or the other with me when I traveled just to make sure those New York and Connecticut's and New Jersey, if I got stopped there, I was still okay. So that basically does basically what I was doing as a, as a law enforcement officer. So, yeah. And it's, it's interesting because we understand that there are the Leosa allowances for uh, law enforcement officers, as long as they're staying current with, uh, with all their regulations and all the requirements that they can continue to carry. Um, but it's interesting. I had a conversation this weekend with uh, with a retired Marine who used to, actually used to work for one of the inspector's offices, and he's he's a sworn law enforcement officer. He showed me his Leosa card. It was his DOD Leosa card. And uh, and he and I were talking. Uh, Congressman Bacon, who's a retired uh, Air Force general uh, Nebraska, actually just introduced a bill that would clarify some of the portions of Leosa to make sure that it's a little bit easier for for uh, you know law enforcement such as yourselves to be able to continue to carry and that the, some of those some of those little caveats that are in there are, are kind of cleaned up to make sure that that uh, you know those who are uh, you know keeping up with their requirements are able to continue to carry a, a firearm with them to, so if they have to in an emergency be able to uphold and defend the law absolutely and i even think of that as rural people cuz uh, we just had that conversation this morning with the rural badge regarding you know armed citizens because they can be an assist mm-hmm. to law enforcement in rural areas because they are armed. And uh, the majority of the people I know in the rural area know how to handle a gun, are very proficient in it. And I would be more than happy if I was in a dire situation to have them aid me. So, uh, you know, it would just, like you said, it cleans it up. And living in northern New Hampshire where Vermont and Maine are so close to each other and we interact so much together, um, you know, a lot of people come get their groceries from Vermont and New Hampshire. So to, not to violate those laws, I mean, that's to, I think it would just be great. So I think that's very good. So uh, what are you guys doing different during COVID or now that we're coming out of COVID? I know the big thing is your SHOT Show and that, that was canceled and that was a big slug in the gut. Uh, so, but is there plans to diversify, to, to, to take on some different things or um, just what has COVID th- brought to you guys? In a positive yeah, so, manner. Uh, not ha- <laughs> yeah, so not we know what it brought bad. Really- <laughs> yeah. yeah, not having shot show really hurt. And I think the big question now, not just from us in, in as a set, but everybody is, is where's the ammo? Where can I find ammunition? Uh, right. So uh, so we could talk about that in a second. But but as far as the plans of Ford. You know where the ammo is? We're looking at. Because <laughs> my kid wants to shoot yeah. trap this summer. And I'm like, eee, we can go about three times, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, exactly. So, I, I don't mean to take you uh, off your pace, Mark, but that's no, kind of what we'll, I do. We'll go, we'll go back to it. I'll be glad <laughs> to talk about that in a moment. But uh, we, uh, so as far as NSSF, you know, we already have plans underway for SHOT Show next year. Awesome. Uh, the floor plan is going to be different. Uh, they're going to take into some of the considerations we're already planning on doing with the expansion because we're going to be going over to Caesar's, uh, Caesar's Forum as well. So there'll be a sky bridge that goes across the road. We're going to have a whole new area over there, a couple nice. of Manufacturers have already agreed to to move over that way. So, of course, when the big guys move over, some of the smaller guys are more willing to go because they're afraid. You know, no one wants to be missing out on some of that foot traffic. Mm, they're sure. going to expand some of the aisles. 
so we can accommodate some of the, the some of the concerns about social distancing, and that's also going to allow us to clean up some of the dead ends that were in the show floor plan uh, that sometimes kind of led to nowhere. And if you weren't familiar with the plan, you know, and I always tell everyone, if you're going to come to Shacho, you have to come in with the plan because you're never going right. to see everything all all even if you spend all four or five days there. So, um, you know it's going to make it a little bit easier to navigate a little bit, a little bit roomier. We'll be so crowded. Maybe, you know, some of the guys, some of the older guys who like to carry those old carts still around and yeah, <laughs> and kind of use them as a weapon to kind of get through their way through the aisle. That might be cleaned up a little bit, but uh, you know, some of those considerations are being taken in. Of course, we're still going on with some of our, uh, our, our seminars. Uh, I know we're planning on having the uh, range and retail seminar down in Florida uh, here in a couple months. We're going to be doing our import export conference in uh, in Washington, D.C., like we always do here in a couple months. So those things are all moving along as we're being allowed to now start to go back out and have in-person events. Uh, and in the meantime, we've been trying to do as much as we can virtually. Uh, we do our fly-in where we bring a lot of the manufacturers into D.C. to talk to lawmakers every year. We had to cancel that last year. But this year, we're going we're, we're gonna to do it here in the next few weeks, and we're going to do it virtually. So we're just adapting to the way we do things so we can still get business done. But awesome! what a year it's been for gun sales, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So when we talk about ammunition. I think it's important to talk, just talk first about gun sales. So we had 21 million background checks for the sale of a gun last year. And that is by far a record. So our best year ever for wow. 2020 was uh, in 2016. We sold 15.7 million uh, guns or background checks for the sale of a gun. Um, so we have, we exceeded all expectations. And if I sat here and told you, 2020 that we're going to have 21 million background checks. You just said, Mark, you're insane. There's no way you should have a job. And you'd crazy say that. <laughs> but it is, it is a crazy wow. figure, but it tells us a couple of things. It tells us one, America's appetite for firearms is there. People became very concerned for their personal safety over the pandemic. And I'm sure you guys saw this as law enforcement as well. Local law enforcement was telling their communities that they were going to have to curtail some activities and they weren't going to get to right. one one call because of fear of being vectors of infection within that community. Sure. Uh, so there was that. And then there was, uh, you know, of course, the summer we saw widespread violence and, and looting with cities. And it wasn't just one city. It wasn't just one state or one region. It was a national phenomenon. And it wasn't something that was just isolated to the urban centers. I saw it in, in my community where I live, and I'm in a suburban area outside of Washington, D.C. So we saw this happen. And then typically we see happen during election years. Gun sales tend to rise because of the talk about gun control. We saw this in 2016 with Hillary Clinton and President Trump. She was talking about enacting the 1994 assault weapons ban and bringing around background checks. And of course, we saw those same things, but we saw to a much greater degree of some of the gun control things that uh, President Biden wants to do. So all those things kind of came together in a perfect storm to get us 21 million background checks. Now going into 2021, we're still seeing people spying guns at record levels. Right. We had 1.7 million background checks or so uh, just in April, and that was a record April. Uh, we've had over 7.1 million background checks so far in 2021. So I think last year we had a lot of people buying guns for the very first time. We did a retail survey and asked our retailers, hey, what are you seeing when people are coming into your store? And they told us that 40% of the people that were coming into the stores were buying a gun for the very first time. And that tells us of 21 million background checks, over 8.4 million people bought a gun for the very first time last That's year. That's incredible. And it is. It really is a tectonic shift when we're starting to talk about that because these are people who up until 2020 could have a rhetorical conversation about gun ownership. It was a cocktail party discussion. It was something that they had no skin in the game. But in 2020, they decided that they were now going to become a gun owner. And it's not just a decision, okay, I'm going to become a gun owner. You literally have to invest hard-earned dollars to do that. 
So in a state like New Hampshire or a state like I live in Virginia, it's not terribly difficult to exercise your Second Amendment rights. You go into the gun store, you got the gun you want, you fill out your 4473, they run the next background check, and you're good. You, and you're, you can go home with your gun. In other states like Massachusetts or Connecticut or New York, you have to get a firearm under identification card. You have to jump through all the hurdles. And during the pandemic, some of these governors, especially Governor Baker of Massachusetts, was shutting down his gun stores. He wasn't allowing them to open up. So they were putting impediments in the way of people being able to exercise their gun rights. So we're seeing this, that there's an appetite among Americans to be able to protect themselves. We're seeing that continue over. And that's having a huge boon, not just for the gun industry, but you know, also for some conservation efforts. So we've actually had two back-to-back record quarters for the Pittman Robertson excise tax submissions. We are now over $13.8 billion that's been generated from the sale of firearms and ammunition that's going back into conservation. I've been, I've been talking to wildlife agencies and, and DNRs and some of these states, and they're saying this is the first year that they're not wondering where that money's going to come from. They know right. they're going to get a good check. So that's a huge boon to those of us who, who love the outdoors and want to be able to see this uh, you know, preserved and, and, and conserved for future generations, for our kids and our grandkids and their kids to be able to go on out to, their, to the woods and enjoy the same things that we do. Um, but also, it's had a huge effect, like we were just talking about, on ammunition. Every one of those people who are buying guns are looking for ammo for those guns. Right. So eight and a half million people who bought a gun for the very first time, if they bought just one box of 50, 50 rounds to go with that, that's yeah. 420 million rounds that they bought. But I don't know about you guys. When I go to the range and I'm going to take, say, just my AR-15 and my and my handgun with me, I'm starting with 100 rounds per. Yeah. So 200 yeah. rounds just to, just to have fun for an hour and mm. keep my skills sharp. Right. Uh, so you go shoot a round of sporting clays, you're going to go through 100 rounds of ammunition. Uh, so yeah. it is. And then bring your it's kid. Gonna be, yeah, it's, it's going <laughs> to have a huge, huge impact. You know, so we stock 21 million guns. All these people looking for all those different calibers. Uh, and so it's, it's when you start to look at those numbers and how great that scale becomes, it's easy to see why it's so difficult to find nine millimeter right now. It's difficult to find, you know, 22 longer. I'm thinking about next year's hunting season. Should I get drawn by New Hampshire's, you know, <laughs> right. am I going to have enough ammo to get ready? <laughs> do I have enough 30 out six ammo? You know, am yeah. I gonna, do I have enough? Yeah. If I decide if I'm going to be in an area that's going to be shotgun only, do I have enough slug, uh, slug uh, rounds for my shotgun? So these are things that people have to be concerned about. And they should be starting to think about these now because honestly, guys, we're going to be living with this for about another year. It's just the manufacturers are doing as much as they can to keep up with it. If it's being made today in the factory, it's going to be put on a truck tonight or tomorrow and it's out the door. No one's holding on to it. And if you're not buying the ammo, it's your next door neighbor. Somebody's buying it. So it's just going to be something that we're going to have to deal with for a while. Yeah, and Mark, on that point on the ammo, that is such a hot button item for all of us, not only on conservation circles, but just two-way circles in general. Um, a lot of my product sponsors like Nosler, Hornady, and you know, different different groups that come together for what I'm doing. Um, I've talked to them hand in hand on that. Like, well, are you guys going to make another factory? Or are you going to mass produce and, and expand? And they said, Well, at what point do you overexpand? And then all of a sudden we get the supply back and then we have a factory that can't sustain itself. And we've put millions and millions of dollars to get, you know, to, to kind of serve the feeding frenzy, if you will, until we get a stabilization where we're on normal production. So how is that played from what you're seeing more nationally with the, with the groups and our manufacturers looking to 
overbuild, if you will? Do they find it a necessity or would it be a liability risk coming forward like I'm hearing from some of the guys I work with? Yeah. So I think it's interesting. Of course, we're now getting to see Remington's coming back online, I think, which is going to be a huge help. Yeah, it is. That was a big loss. Big green, big green coming on. And during this whole pandemic, they were only running at about 10% capacity, just enough really to kind of keep the lights on and the machines moving. Um, but, you know, now that Vista has them uh, – Purchased out of bankruptcy, they're they're moving forward. They're part of the federal premium family. They're going to be making some some ammunition again. I think a lot of us are really happy to see that happen again. Awesome, That's like cool. you said. I mean, there there are particular rifles that I only shoot Hornady rounds to those rifles because I know exactly how those are going to perform. There are other right. rifles I only shoot Federal through, so I know those how those those bullets are going to perform when I when I fire them. Um, so I think a lot of us who are very particular to uh, certain brands of ammunition are all looking to those and and asking, hey, could you could you expand? But you're right. If they put a shovel in the dirt today, they're not going to be able to start making their first bit of product until you know three to five years from now. And it's all yeah. the permitting process, all the investment, all the capital that has to go into that. It's just not so easy to go back and cut the cellophane off and turn the light switch on and you can start making bullets. Mm. I think people need to understand that. I think a lot of the things too, like you were talking about, is the manufacturers really have learned some of the hard lessons of 2017. Or like people who are detractors of guns called it the Trump slump. You know, we had records mm-hmm. 2016 going in, uh, 15.7 million background checks. And then in, 20, in 2017, 2018, everything kind of plateaued out. And they were still really high levels. If you compare them to overall history, they were higher than they were five years before, but they were lower. They, were, they weren't quite there. Even to 2019, we had 13.2 million background checks for the sale of the gun in 2019 before we hit this surge we're in now. So I think everyone understands this is going to plateau out somewhere. When and where? People are, are kind of rubbing their crystal ball to try to figure it out, but right. it's it's been very difficult. But you know, to, to make that kind of investment, I think they're learning the lessons they saw in 2017. Now, and I kind of point to to one manufacturer in North Carolina, they uh, a company called Warsport. Warsport made nice little AR-15 rifles. A buddy of mine uh, from my old Marine Corps days used to turn barrels for them. They made a, nice. a rifle. It wasn't wasn't an inexpensive rifle. It's about a two thousand uh, dollar price point rifle. Uh, so they were they were good rifles, but they just weren't a big enough company to survive the downturn. And they ended up getting sold off for parts. So I think a lot of your manufacturers have learned those lessons. They're making those good financial decisions that are going to carry them through the out years. And so like you said, this isn't going to be with us forever. I mean, we're going to we're going to settle out somewhere and and that plateau will be a little bit lower than we're probably what we're seeing now. But the manufacturing will also creep back up to meet that. So you have to make those sustainment decisions now they're going to carry you forward knowing that we're going to have continued growth if you look at the track record of over 20 years the market has gone you know 20 years ago if you said you're going to send have 7 million background checks for the sale of a gun people, right that was going to be an incredible year this industry yeah. used to be fairly static right it's been it's been growing and it's been growing at a, at a fairly good growth rate over the years and, and i think that's Something we have to take into consideration that so there's like any other manufacturer, there's going to be up years and down years. And I think some of the people are planning for that. Yeah. And the other thing to, to that, to your point on companies not over expanding is the current administration and what could happen if we don't win, we don't get where we need to through your organization and any other 2A organizations that we're all part of for all the right reasons, um, especially if weapons laws get more and more restrictive, access gets more and more restrictive. And, you know, weapon sales just, not because of consumer lack of demand, but just because of administrative oversight, they suddenly shut down. And you got these companies that are really booming right now. And like you said, you're a smaller company making a quality AR and they had to scale down and go to parts just because of what was happening in the nature of the political realm. And then, you know, 
heaven forbid it get to the big, big companies. But I mean, there's that possibility and certainly a concern there. And um, just wondering what you guys see trends there. And, and hopefully we're, we're still on the upside of that. Yeah. So I'll tell you, we're concerned. And I think that's as being as optimistic as we possibly can at this point. Um, we are seeing an administration that has been by far the most hostile to Second Amendment rights than we've ever yeah. seen. Uh, we're seeing record level of uh, gun control lobbying spending in Washington, D.C. Uh, they're trying to push for everything they can get. Uh, we're seeing bills being introduced that are are beyond the pale when it comes to uh, talking about you know, infringing upon your Second Amendment rights. There's, there's no longer talk about infringing. It's just outright wanting to make the Second Amendment not exist anymore. Right. So we're, we're having to fight against some of those wild proposals, but we're also having to fight against what some people are trying to say, oh, well, these are midstream moderate proposals, and they're not. This administration is looking to weaponize the Department of Justice and the ATF against the industry. And, and that's just the plain out truth. And we saw this happen this past week uh, with the introduction of the proposed rule for uh, redefining what is and isn't a firearm. Right. Currently, when a frame or receiver goes beyond 80%, uh, finished capacity, that is now considered a firearm. And that's when the ATF regulates it as such. That's when you're required to put a serial number on it. That's when the people, as soon as manufacturers start paying that excise tax on it, it's, it's considered a firearm. But up until that 80% mark, it is just a piece of metal. Right Now, this new proposal, and I've still got a thumb through it all, but it doesn't really give a clear definition as to what is a frame or receiver and what is a firearm. That anything, if it's in a kit now, I guess, can be a firearm. And that really, that definition can change up to whomever the ATF director is or whoever the attorney general is. That's and that seems, it's, it's, so very sub, it's very subjective. And that's very difficult, even for the, for the manufacturers who are trying to make finished man, finish arms. When you have subjective standards and you don't know how they're going to be applied, well, how do you make sure that your, your manufacturing facility is within the compliance of that law? So, and this, is, this isn't just something that we can talk about this you know, well, it's, it's up to the to the big gun industry to figure out. This has an effect on the jobs here in New Hampshire. Look at Ruger. I'm a lot of Ruger production right. there in New Hampshire making fine rifles, and, and a lot of those are ARs. So the folks at Ruger are looking at this very closely just as much as we are. So we're very concerned about this. But, you know, also the nomination of David Chipman to be the director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Uh, this is a man who, as you and I are speaking right now, is still paid by Giffords Gun Control to lobby for their gun control efforts. Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> Senator, Senator Tom Cotton said this would be akin to putting a vegan in charge of a Brazilian steakhouse. I mean, this, right. is, <laughs> I mean, this is a man who Regula hates guns. Regulating big game hunting laws in any given state. Yeah, oh, I mean, this is God. this is a guy who who is who is not uh, Congress to consider the AR-15 semi-automatic rifle an assault rifle and regulate it as a machine gun under the 1934 NFA and, and has sought seeing these kinds of controls. And now you want to put him in charge of the regulatory agency that has oversight of who makes guns and how they make those guns. So it is very uh, scary proposition. So we're actively involved with making sure Congress is informed of, of who this man is and where his stances are. And I think as I start to peel some of the uh, layers of the onion on him and his, and his time, even within the ATF, uh, you know, his, his work that he did at, at Waco. And, and, and as a former Marine, I look at pictures of him standing in front of the, of the burning wreckage of what was Waco. And, and we can have discussions about who broke the law and who didn't break the law and, and what the branch divisions were doing and whether or not that was legal. And, and not, I'm certainly not advocating for anybody to start shooting at any law enforcement officer. But here we had someone who was a sworn law enforcement officer 
standing in front of the burning remains. And there's there's pictures. If you look closely, you can see the skull of one of those victims. And there, there were women and children who died in that compound. Right. And a picture in front of that. Now, I've had, I, I, I've, during my time in Iraq, we saw Marines get court-martialed for this kind of thing. So yeah. I, I'm having a hard time reconciling that this is a man who generally has his heart in the right place of trying to serve the American public and being put in a position of trust to serve the American public. So and I, th- I think that's something that the administration is we're working really hard to make sure Congress understands what the administration is trying to do here. Yeah. And it's super good to hear that you guys are. And thank you very much for that. Um, because people need to know that moving forward to make that choice or not make that choice. And something we noticed was, you know, you mentioned some of the new things coming down the pike, but the ninth circuit decision on concealed carry Nolan Boyd and everything that was the ninth circuit. And I know for me coming from, you know, an LEO career in conservation, wildlife enforcement, everything from fighting the cartels for environmental stuff and poaching and you name it. Um, we kind of expect that in California or the Ninth Circuit, but now I'm home in Montana and Montana being under the Ninth Circuit said, what? <laughs> and you can kind of imagine the blowback we had, everything from our local sheriff all the way up to our governor, just saying that's unconstitutional. We're not going to honor that. Um, are you seeing states that are traditionally, you know, in the realm of conservation, in the realm of two-way advocates, a- advocacy from the standpoint of a lifestyle early on being raised that way for all the right reasons, are you seeing pushback to decisions like that? Regardless of where they go, you know, judicially, are the states going to honor that? Or are we going to, you know, are, are some states looking at moving forward and just sticking to what is constitutional under what we've been educated on? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. I think what you're seeing is a movement among states right now that they see an administration and, and, and possibly a Congress and potentially a court that is, that is openly hostile to the Second Amendment, openly hostile to constitutional rights. And so that's why you're seeing states start to pass Second Amendment sanctuary laws that are not just within the, within the counties. And I've, I saw this happen last year in, in Virginia. It had all, all, nearly every county in Virginia declare themselves a Second Amendment sanctuary county. But not yeah. states do this. And, and I think probably the biggest you're seeing right now is Texas is talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> right. And we recently saw that, you know, uh, Governor Hutchinson in Arkansas wrestled with this. They sent him a proposal. He looked at it and he vetoed it. And, and it was kind of a, uh, you know, for a lot of gun owners, uh, a kind of an odd decision as to why he did that, because he's very pro 2A. He's very pro uh, industry. He comes to SHOT Show every year. Right. And he's trying to convince other companies to come to Arkansas. Um, and and I really what it came down to was that the way the law, the way that bill proposal was, it, it, it said that it could have jeopardized uh, Pittman-Robertson excise taxes. Uh, so they went back and they reworked it and drafted a different bill and sent that to him to which he signed. And it's actually something that we've been talking. I had a discussion with Andrew McKean from Outdoor Life uh, last week about this. And, and you are working with. Uh, state uh, state legislators and state attorneys general to make sure that they understand that you know we want to make sure that the Pittman Robertson excise tax is safeguarded because we understand the great work that it's doing and we want to preserve that. It's our belief that that is a tax that is levied on the manufacturers as an excise tax. That's not levied on you as a gun buyer. It's not levied on you as a gun owner. So it doesn't really have the same kind of effect. It's levied on on the manufacturers to, to pay that tax as soon as it becomes a firearm. So they have to, they, they pay that out. So, but in that case where that, that could be jeopardized, we're trying to make sure that the language is clear that it is any kind of new tax or any kind of tax on gun owners or gun purchases, not on the industry itself. So that way we safeguard the Pittman Robertson taxes. But I know some of our guys that work in some of the Western region states, we talked about Montana, have, have yeah. talked with Attorney General Knutson. I've had the chance to meet him. He's a great guy. Yeah. 
he's he's a he's a rancher. He's a hunter. He's a, he's a shooter. I have Facebook friends with him. I see him constantly putting up pictures of his kids out shooting with him. Awesome. Uh, he has said that you know should they try and come after you know gun owners, he said you know give me the give me a reason to sue the administration. I'll do it. So I think he's very bold and a, and a very uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, well-respected uh, attorney general in Montana, who's going to stand up for gun owners and stand up for the industry. Yeah. It, and it's refreshing to see, you know, some States doing that, but on, on that role, you know, taking it a step further, I mean, it's, it's one thing when you have an, an embedded legitimate to a community and conservation, which all three of us talking today, obviously are, you know, and obviously most majority of Montana where I'm at now um, is under that yoke and even New Hampshire where Wayne is, but what about the new generation? I mean, one thing we saw during COVID is we saw these traditional, almost actually some anti-gun owners say, wait a minute, I'm calling halt on that mentality because I might have to self-sustain for my family. And I have no idea how to process an animal. I don't know the first thing about humanely harvesting one with a firearm, let's say. And so we get this boom in hunter education uh, classes. We certify, I don't know, probably 30% more hunters annually through March, April, and May of last year nationally, which, you know, for game wardens, but that's just a, wow, we got to that group. That's fantastic. They're good. They're yeah. seeing some good things. Um, but now they got to use these weapons. They don't have training. Maybe they, uh, they're really a little unsure about going to hunter education class. So our whole thing has been the recruitment and the retention of paying it forward and bringing the new generation in to quote unquote, a dying sport as we urbanize nationally and get away from that. So, and you guys are on the forefront of doing some good programs or promoting that outside of just two a and industry issues. Where does NSF sit with that right now, especially at this pivotal time? And uh, certainly appreciate what you guys are doing there. And if you could fill us in. Yeah. So uh, what's been interesting is over the year, uh, obviously, we saw this huge interest in, in hunting and people wanted to make sure that they could, uh, you know, be able to get food when especially yeah. kind of last year, about this time frame during turkey seasons for most people. Yeah. Uh, some we saw some of the uh, some of the, you know, processors were being shut down because of concerns of COVID in those meatpacking plants. Um, so all of a sudden people were like, Hey, I can get out and I can shoot a couple of turkeys in the spring. I'm going to do that. So, um, so it's, it's very encouraging to see it. And, and what was encouraging to us was even states that may be um, not traditionally two way or hunting focused. Some of those states waived their, their hunter certification uh, requirements, New York state waived those requirements that you could get your hunter certification online. And as long as you came back when they finally started doing online classes to do your final test and, be, and get your, your hunter safety card. Um, so it, it is very encouraging to see that. Um, and we've seen a lot of states moving toward um, apprenticeship programs. So the kind of a try it before you buy it, not just for youth, but even for adult onset hunters who, yeah. you know, hey, I didn't grow up with this. My dad never taught me this. And my mom never taught me this. And I really want to learn about it. Well, now, as long as they go out with a licensed hunter who can mentor them to teach them how to handle that firearm safely, teach them what an ethical shot is and how to ethically harvest that animal, how to make sure you're getting the most out of that animal once you get that animal on the ground. Uh, that is kind of the idea that they have a chance to kind of try before they buy it at a minimal cost before they have to start making the investment. Because we understand getting into the hunting and shooting sports, it's not, a, not an inexpensive endeavor. So uh, we want to try and reduce those barriers to entry. 
Um, but on our part as well, a couple of years ago, we started our plus one program through NSSF. And this is kind of a, you know, a bit of an honor program, but we kind of take it as a personal challenge to, to every one of us who is a hunter or a recreational shooter. If we love our sport and we love what we do, we should be sharing that with other people. We should be bringing it back out. So we've made a challenge to everyone. If you're a hunter, grow one more just like you. Make that pledge. Make that promise to yourself now that you're going to get one person to go out into the woods with you. Either hasn't been out into the woods in years or has never had the opportunity and wants to learn. And what we've found is, is that if you just ask somebody, hey, if you're ever interested, I'll be more than happy to take you out for a squirrel hunt. Or I'll be more than happy to take you out and help you with that deer hunt. People want to go. They just don't know how to get into the sport. So help them out. And I remind everybody, I didn't get into this because I knew what I was doing. I got into it because I was curious and I wanted to learn. And I just happened to have good people around me. Dad took me out for my first couple of deer hunts. But my brother-in-law, he was an archer there in New Hampshire, and he taught me how to do more with bow hunting than I had ever done before. So, I mean, I kind of grew up more with a little bit of bow in my hand and, and kind of tromping through the woods than I do with a, with a rifle. But, you know, it's, it's, we, we encourage everybody to, to you know, make, make that accommodation to bring somebody else out with you and share that passion that you have. And that's what's going to become infectious. That, that's yeah, it. and it's great. To, it's great to hear that because we don't always have a relative in the new world that's had that experience, you know. And an apprenticeship with somebody coming in from outside that that has that conservation background, and I think it just bridges the gap, you know. It just it just opens up more of a community. If you've been kind of polarized, maybe politically, just through no fault, just because of where we're from demographically and how we've been raised, urban versus rural, uh, conservative versus liberal state, whatever the case may be, but it's kind of melding that. And, you know, we've really seen a lot of that happen, especially starting this thin green line podcast right in the middle of COVID dropping. It's been neat to see a little bit of unification and all this crazy polarization we have nationally. So I'm glad you guys are doing that. And something Wayne and I will promote very much that you guys are doing, you know, with this podcasting of our efforts. So super, super encouraging to see that. Yeah, and I think I think you bring up a great point. I mean, this is something that that really does reach across some of those lines. You know, I may have grown up with a certain type of lifestyle and a certain a certain type of view on on world politics and, and national politics. Um, but you know, it's 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 some of these people who are really passionate about the local movement who maybe don't have some of the same political leanings as we might do, but we can agree on this. We can agree on the idea of sustainable and ethical harvesting of animals and using our natural resources to the most of, of what we can do and perpetuating that forward for our generations. And, and, and just the passion for being able to, I, I enjoy a good venison steak. Gentlemen, I, <laughs> one, of the best, one of the, one of the best, you know, animals I've ever eaten was an axis deer out of Texas. I, I can't wait yeah. to go and, and harvest another one. I was able to harvest a black bear a couple of years ago in, uh, in, in Maine. And it was incredible. I, I'm glad to be able to put that, I meet in my freezer and share it with everyone else around me. But when we start to bridge some of those gaps, I think it becomes, uh, you know, a winner for all of us. I mean, we start to look around us. I mean, I grew up reading Field and Stream and Outdoor Life, and I love those things. And that's it's a generation of, of my dad's that I was able to enjoy, and I'm able to enjoy that now. But if we look across, I mean, people aren't reading uh, what Steve Rennell is putting out or watching what Steve Rennell is putting out for the media because they actually grew up with what I did. They're, they're seeing a different side of hunting. And I think it's a great thing that people can enjoy that. He's talking not just about harvesting the animal, which we've seen a lot of TV shows talk about, yeah. uh, but he's talking about how, how you're going to cook nearly every part of that animal. I had a great conversation with Ryan Callahan with Mediator as well a couple uh, a few yeah. weeks ago. We're up in Connecticut and they were showing him a bear den study. Uh, and what we do with some of the PR dollars. But he and I had a conversation about um, 
about making corned beef out of uh, out of uh, bison tongue. You know, you know something that I wouldn't have thought about doing, but he's like, oh, I love it. You ever have the chance to put a bison? And I'll, I keep telling my wife every year for Christmas that'd be a great Christmas gift. Um, but you know, now hey, it's something I haven't thought about. But again, it's these ideas of, of sustainable harvest and being able to use every part of the animal that may be attracting somebody else to the shooting sports and to hunting that we hadn't grown up with. And I think these are areas where we can find common ground. And isn't that what we should all be doing, right? Finding common ground for one another. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think we need to. And to your point, Stephen and Yanni and Cal do that really, really well on Meat Eater. You know, it's something we talked about on their podcast a little bit. And something else they brought in is, you know, just defining what conservation is from not only, you know, all the way from field to fork and what do you do next and how do you make this thing a delicacy and really bring in the non hunting community. But, you know, game wardens are your allies, you know, responsible shooters. Yeah allies and they really have merged that gap on you know outside of the traditional uh, con- conservation circles and, and we need more of that and you guys are doing that i know wayne and i certainly are in our podcasts um we're grateful to those guys on their platforms for doing it too and i it's kind of like the you know it's our, it's our last hope if you will to get to the masses um and it's all going to be through this visual because they're just not going to see it any other way yeah yeah, and that that's some of the positive things from COVID is is to bring those issues to light because I know some of those people that bought those firearms and now they're looking for training. Now they want to they're searching out how to do this and how to do that, and you know we need to support them. I know my son's friend. I bring him out hunting every chance we get. Uh, I've certainly exposed him to shooting and, and things like that. Trying to, to like you said, pass it on. And when everybody can do that, uh, that I think that's really good but it's hard to do it with ammo now that uh, you know i'm supplying one kid now it's hard to supply <laughs> two kids and i look what i got yeah. and i'm like i thought i had plenty and i think everybody's at that they thought they had plenty and uh, i think they all want more and that's probably why because when my father goes in and sees it he cleans the shelf off and uh <laughs> and i'm like you and paid- that's that's part of it yeah so it's what i call the toilet paper effect the same thing we saw about this time last yes, year with toilet that's exactly still happening with ammunition yeah 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 so and when you come home to New Hampshire, do you, you your brother in law is that the same brother in law that we both know, Scott Rulo? Is he the one that taught you with a bow, or is that a different? Uh, yeah. One? So uh, yeah, when I was uh, when he was dating my sister uh, when they were in college, he introduced me to uh, to shooting the bow. Nice. Uh, he was an archer then, and uh, and he kind of taught me uh, how to shoot that bow. And my first my first compound bow was uh, an old Jennings Black Lightning. Uh, nice. Yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I've still got it. And I don't shoot it nearly as I don't. I don't think I shoot it uh, probably in the past you know twenty years. I shoot actually now as a as a Matthews Q2. I've had that since uh, two thousand, and I've watched all these new bows come out of the market, and they're beautiful. But I'm like, you know, this this bow still works, and I'm, I'm still smaller yeah. this bow, so I'll take it. So, um, uh, and of course, being in the firearm industry, uh, my bosses remind me that. Uh, <laughs> I'm paid to make things go bang, not twang. So I try to do more hunting with the, uh, with yeah. the arms than I do with the, with the bow, but certainly the bow helps me extend my season and hunt certain areas that I couldn't hunt, uh, with, uh, with the firearms. So, awesome. uh, you know, it's, it's been a busy spring. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to kind of carve time out for turkeys this spring. I, I know this coming back up there in New Hampshire. I'm sure Scott will be out on the farm and, uh, yeah. and I'll be putting some turkeys down. I know he's got plenty on there. He's, he's been doing quite a bit of work on some of the coyotes, uh, uh, and he's been and enjoying, of course, having having the the pheasant preserve up there, which has been a lot of fun. My my Labrador retriever believes his farm is heaven because <laughs> that back door there's a bird flying somewhere. So he thinks it's just the best place in the world to be, and, and I couldn't disagree with him. Yeah, so. and he's one of well, our operations. 
Game Thief uh, directors too. So that's kudos to him for you know giving back yeah. for with Operation Game Thief, and he's certainly a, a valued member. Yeah, and I know he appreciates the work that, uh, that all the conservation officers are doing up there in, in New Hampshire. Um, you know, I, I know he wants to be a, a valued resource. He wants the farm to be a valued resource for introducing people to the shooting sports and, and getting people out there. And, and, and bird hunting is, is one of those easy ways to do that. It's, uh, it's fun. It's, uh, you know, way to launch. It's, it's a fun way to get in there. It's, it's a lot of action. And, and he's got some incredible dogs. I love watching those dogs just just turn wheels through that farm and just run through those, uh, through those woods. So it's a lot of, a lot of good fun out there. Absolutely. Great stuff. Yeah. So anything in closing Mark, because uh, we've gone through a whole lot of stuff and uh... yeah. So I think I'd remind, you know, everybody in addition to the kind of things we've talked about of, of, you know, trying to get somebody out there to hunt with you and trying to get somebody to, to get back into the woods with you. It's also, you know, we talked about a lot of these new gun owners. One of the things that we're really big on here at national shooting sports foundation is, is if you're not using a firearm, make sure that that gun is, is safely locked up. Right. You know, if you, if you decide you want to carry that gun in your home, good on you. That, that firearm's in use, and, and, and you should be able to do that. We're not telling you how you need to lock it up because everyone's going to have different storage needs. My storage needs from when I was a single guy it changed after I got married and started having kids. And then after my kids became adults, uh, then that changed again. And now it's changing once more that now I've got grandchildren. So I've got to think about those things. But we ask everybody who wants a gun to make sure that that firearm is stored uh, beyond the reach of those who should never have their hands on it, whether that's a prohibited individual, whether that's a small child or someone, someone who may be enduring a mental health episode, make sure that, the, that those people are safeguarded as well. You know, one of my worst fears is, is that my firearms get out of my control and then, and they're used in some kind of crime or some kind of negligent use. That's, it's always been a, a just one of these kind of nightmare scenarios to us. And I think any of us as gun owners hold that same, but you know, take that from beyond just a, a you know an unsettling concern at times to, to make sure you're doing your part. You make sure that your firearms are locked up. Make sure that they're locked up safely. Make sure that you have your ammunition locked up separately, and, and teach the kids. I mean, I, I understand when I was a kid, I was very curious. I, I got I figured out a way to find out where my parents were hiding their Christmas gifts. So if <laughs> you can get understand in. <laughs> how to how to find your firearm in the back of your closet, they're going to find a way to do it. So so yeah. take the time to invest. If not anything, use that cable lock that comes with the gun when you bought it. Uh, and when, when that's applied properly, it renders that firearm uh, safe and, and, and unusable. So, uh, but find a way that's going to work best and make sure that those firearms are safeguarded. At awesome. The, at the beginning, I challenged you to share something that you haven't shared with anybody else. That's still in your head. Oh, well, I, I think I, I can't. I don't think I've shared this with any other media. So I am one of the forty thousand people who has put his name in to help do my part to reduce the ecological impact of the bison on the North River of of uh, of Arizona. So Arizona <laughs> National Park Service. I uh, saw that. Yeah, so, yeah. They they said okay, we're going to open it up, and so I set a reminder on my uh, on my calendar. <laughs> Make sure I put in for it. Uh, I always joked around since I first got here to NSSF that I was just here for the bison hunt. So yep. this is it. So May 17th, I think they do the, the final draw for 12 people of those 40,000 who put in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, be able to go in and harvest a bison. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Now, of course, it, being National Park Service and the Kaibab National Forest, they're saying anybody who has to do it has to do it with uh, copper ammunition. I have no idea where I'm going to find copper ammunition. It might be if I get drawn, I might be making a phone call to Steve Rennell and asking for him if somebody is. Uh, yeah. He has his own line uh, through federal, but uh, 
you know, you know, good on those people, whoever gets a chance to do that. But uh, guys, if, if I get the chance to do it, I'm looking for a couple of people with strong backs to help me pull <laughs> that meat out there. I'm willing to share. Sean's so. got a real strong back. <laughs> I keep, yeah. you, I'll keep you on the short list if you're interested in being the 9,000 foot elevation and carrying a couple hundred pounds of bison. So. Yeah, I might be able to help you out on that, man. And that's that's a great opportunity. I, I saw that uh, one of the head sheds of Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Scott Swayze, a good friend of mine that's on their board of directors. I do a lot with Scott at SCI and he said, this fits you. Can you put in all the dates? You know, there was some conflicts, but I can sneak out a day or two and buck some meat, man. Let's, let's. (laughs) You're on the short list. I got you. He's already at that elevation too. So he's all ready to rock and roll. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's not going to be an easy one. You know, this isn't this bison hunt. People think it is. There's real work involved and it's a real management scheme and it's going to be all hands on deck for sure great opportunity yeah, yeah. I, i'm encouraged that the national park service did this i know a couple of years ago they were talking about it and, and there was some concerns about you know handling the the meat and handling the the hide and heads and you know first there was talk about everything would have to be donated to local tribes and, and and i'm probably like a lot of people this is if you get drawn for this is kind of a once in a lifetime thing i don't have a problem with sharing it but i want to be able to take some of that meat home as well and mm. so I, it's worked out well i think some of the guidelines that they put out that you know, it's every, every, every shooter volunteer is going to, yeah. you know, everyone gets to hang the meat. Everyone's going to get to home, even if you don't have a chance to harvest your own animal, which I, I think everyone's probably going to have a really good opportunity to do that. Uh, and all their, their, you know, volunteers are helping to pack out the meat. I'll have a chance to take that home. And then there'll still be opportunity. And, and Lord knows that those animals are big enough, the opportunity to be able to donate some to the local tribes in the area who, so huge. who value that. It, and, uh, and it goes a long way toward the things that we've all talked about being just a good neighbor and being a good ambassador for our sport. And I would hope that anybody who is drawn considers that as, as being able to thank the tribes for being able to go onto some of that land and being able to use some of those resources and, and providing some of that back to them, especially those who, who maybe can't get out and hunt for themselves anymore, but really value the, that resource and being able to put that into their freezers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, what a pleasure to meet you. What a pleasure to have a great conversation with you. And uh, we really appreciate you being on the show and anything we can do to help on the Thin Green Line or Warden's Watch side, keep us in mind. Absolutely, guys. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.